Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, Israeli troops seized the biggest hospital in the Gaza Strip. What did they find at the hospital? And fuel is allowed through the Rafah border crossing for the first time. A surprising influx of Chinese nationals crossing the border illegally raises concerns from lawmakers. Melina Weisskup reports on that and an update on a possible impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas. China's aggression in the spotlight amid a high-stakes U.S. meeting with the CCP. What's President Biden saying and what's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis saying about the communist regime? Iris Tao in San Francisco. Trump's team requests a mistrial in the New York civil fraud case. Arlene Richards tells us why they say the judge is biased. And in Colorado, a judge prepares to rule on Trump's eligibility for the ballot. New Hampshire will keep its first in the nation status for presidential primaries, and Biden's name won't be on the ballot. This comes after a nearly year-long battle with the DNC, which has chosen South Carolina to kick off this election cycle. This is NTD Evening News, live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. The House Homeland Security Committee is nearing an end to its impeachment inquiry into DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Today, he and FBI Director Christopher Wray testified before the committee and were grilled with questions on threats to the homeland, such as an uptick in the Chinese nationals crossing the border and the possible presence of Hamas-related terrorists in the U.S. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports from Capitol Hill. For the third year in a row, the U.S. has hit a record high number of apprehensions at the border, 2.4 million in 2023, and that's not including the number of people who evaded Border Patrol, and many say they are the most dangerous ones. We do not minimize the significance <clears throat> of the challenge at the southwest border. That, that wasn't my question, Mr. Mayorkas. My, I, I ask a simple question. Give me a number. Others are particularly concerned about exactly who is coming in. Chinese nationals were apprehended at a rate of 24,000 in 2023. That's 12 times more than last year and a 7,000% increase from 2021. I mean, a lot of them are military-aged guys with former uh, ties not only to the CCP, but also the People's Liberation Army, the PLA. That's not to say that if we were to defend Taiwan against a Chinese invasion, there weren't saboteurs, wouldn't be saboteurs here. Chinese nationals on average pay $75,000 to be smuggled into the United States. And it makes you wonder where they get that money. Special interest aliens from China. What are they doing here? Are they being directed? Is there some larger intelligence? And when FBI Director Christopher Wray was asked specifically about this issue, he pointed to the non-traditional tactics that are used by the CCP to undermine our national security. There are individuals uh, who are affiliated with the Chinese government who are the subject of investigations that we have here, and some of those are people that we're searching for. Wray was also pressed on a different point, specifically the threat of Hamas-related terrorists in the United States. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene pressed the agency to do more to investigate the issue. And this hearing comes at a time when the committee is pressing forward to hold a second impeachment vote on DHS Secretary May Workis. The chairman of the committee, Mark Green, tells me that they're aiming to have this vote by the end of the year. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. 
The Israeli military announces evidence that Hamas is using Gaza's biggest hospital as a terrorist structure. The troops raided the hospital earlier today. The Israeli military on Wednesday entered the biggest hospital in the Gaza Strip, Al-Shifa, in Gaza City. Israel said this was a precise and targeted operation against Hamas. Israel Defense Forces troops continue a targeted operation at this time inside Shifa Hospital. We entered into this operation last night. Shifa as a place we knew from intelligence that had terrorist infrastructure. And since then, we have deepened the operation. Israeli troops found military equipment inside the hospital, including weapons, intelligence materials, and military technology. They also located an operational headquarters with Hamas communications and military materials. These weapons have absolutely no business being inside a hospital. The only reason they're here is because Hamas put them here, because they use this place, like many other hospitals and ambulances and sensitive facilities inside the Gaza Strip, for their illicit military purposes. So there's Kalashnikov rifles here, even uh, ammunition. In a video posted on social media, the Israeli military gave viewers a closer look at how Hamas terrorists hid their military gear among medical equipment. In military terms, this is a grab bag, grab and go, of a Hamas combatant. And if you zoom in and we get some light over here, what you will be able to see are is military equipment. There is a an AK-47, there are cartridges, am, ammo, uh, there are uh, grenades in here, of course, uniformed. And all of that, this was hidden very conveniently, secretly behind the MRI machine. In another post on social media, Israeli Defense Forces confirmed they have successfully delivered incubators, baby food, and medical supplies to Al-Shifa Hospital. The military added their medical team and Arabic-speaking soldiers are on the ground to ensure that these supplies reach those in need. Palestinian authorities proposed a supervised evacuation of the hospital on Tuesday. Hundreds of patients remain in the hospital, including dozens of premature babies. The Hamas-backed Gaza Health Ministry said 40 patients, including three babies, have died since the hospital's emergency generator ran out of fuel on Saturday. And in terms of fuel supplies in Gaza, Israeli defense officials early Wednesday let in some 6,300 gallons of fuel from Rafah Crossing. Also nearly 650 people, mostly dual nationals, were allowed into Egypt. The fuel is the first delivery allowed in since Hamas killed 1,200 Israelis and took some 200 hostages. Israel previously said it won't allow supplies in until the hostages are freed. The fuel will only be used for the UN agency for Palestinian refugees. And staying in the Middle East, the U.S. Navy said its warship shot down a drone in the Red Sea launched from Yemen. This appeared to be only the second time the U.S. has brought down projectiles near its warships since the Israeli-Hamas war began. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. China's human rights record and economic coercion are in the spotlight amid a meeting between the United States and the CCP today. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao is in San Francisco where the meeting took place.
So in a very short while, President Biden will hold a solo press conference right here at the Falili Estate right here in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is exactly where the U.S. meeting with CCP officials was taking place earlier today. And the White House told us this morning that President Biden will no doubt bring up human rights issues with China candidly. And President Biden said during the meeting this morning that he's trying to responsibly manage the competition between U.S. and China so that it does not veer into conflict. However, he also said this on Tuesday. Watch. But I'm not going to continue to sustain the support for positions where if we want to invest in China, we have to turn over all our trade secrets. And today's meeting also comes as concerns are mounting over China's aggression, especially after the U.S. shot down a Chinese spy balloon earlier this year. And of course, as the FBI director Christopher Wray has been warning about a rise in Chinese espionage activities. And while the U.S. is trying to maintain and perhaps improve its relationship with China, the U.S.-China Security and Economic Commission today published a report saying that actually there's been doubts about U.S.-China diplomacy as China has been using its influence around the world trying to manipulate political and economic activities in different countries. It asks that China has been only getting more aggressive and its approach has been even more sophisticated. Meanwhile, a senior Biden administration official also told me last night that a very concerning feature of Chinese diplomacy is its economic coercion toward other countries. He says that U.S. allies and the U.S. need to work together to counter that. And meanwhile, Republicans have been calling on the Biden administration to be tougher on China. Here's Mitch McConnell on the floor today. Watch. The Biden administration has too often met this historic moment with weakness and naivete. Time and time again, it has sacrificed competition on the altar of green climate policy. And thus, as Republican presidential candidate and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis published an op-ed on China on the New York Post on Tuesday. He says that both parties of the U.S. are mistakenly treating China as a friendly competitor, while in fact, he says, is a hostile Marxist regime that if we allow them to continue doing what they're doing, it's going to exploit our openness and steal more of our technology. Back to you. Hunter Biden, the president's son, is seeking to subpoena former President Trump in his criminal gun case. Biden's lawyers wrote to a federal judge that they are seeking specific information from three former DOJ officials and the former president. Hunter Biden has pleaded not guilty to federal crimes related to buying a revolver at a Delaware gun shop in 2018. Prosecutors say he broke the law by lying on a federal form when he swore he was neither using nor addicted to illegal drugs. The former president is seeking a mistrial in the New York civil fraud case. His attorneys say the judge's bias in this case is astonishing. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards reporting tonight. Tonight, New York Judge Arthur Angoran is on notice again about his conduct as the presiding judge over the New York civil fraud case filed by Attorney General Letitia James. Trump's team says his bias is overwhelming, and they are seeking a mistrial. Last week, New York Representative Elise Stefanik filed a complaint with the Ethics Commission. She said the judge's behavior was bizarre. And Goran has been presiding over the case that accuses Trump and two of his sons and others of engaging in a scheme to defraud banks and insurance companies by inflating the value of his assets. In their court filings, Trump's attorneys say the judge's bias threatens both defendants' rights and the integrity of the judiciary as an institution. 
For example, they say Angoran keeps cutting Trump and his lawyers off by insisting that he has already decided Trump committed fraud. And that this behavior, coupled with the principal law clerk Allison Greenfield's unprecedented role in the trial and extensive public partisan activities, caused the court's partiality to be questioned. When Trump's attorneys complained about the law clerk passing him notes, the judge hit them with a gag order. The attorneys now say granting a mistrial is the only way to salvage the rule of law. Meanwhile, in Colorado, a judge who declined to remove herself from a case will decide whether or not Trump gets on the state's ballot. Trump's attorney says Judge Sarah Wallace donated money to a political group that supports flipping Republican congressional seats in the state. Wallace said it happened before she was judge, and she doesn't remember it. Closing arguments in the matter began late Wednesday afternoon. Watchdog group Citizens for Ethics and Responsibility represents six Republican voters who say the former president should be removed from ballot eligibility because of the actions in relation to the January 6th breach of the U.S. Capitol. They cite a little-used law under the 14th Amendment that disqualifies former officials from seeking office if they have been engaged in an insurrection. They are suing Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, arguing that she has the authority to disqualify Trump. Griswold says she will abide by the judge's decision. Justices in Michigan and Minnesota have ruled that Trump can remain on the ballot for the Republican primaries in those states, but declined to immediately decide on his eligibility for the November 2024 general election. In New York, Judge Angoran is delaying a ruling on the request for a mistrial to give the attorney general time to decide if she wants to respond. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Coming up, presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy today taking shots at multiple people, including the chair of the RNC. Meanwhile, a senator gives yet another hint he might enter the presidential race. The FDIC, responsible for insuring your bank deposits, is accused of fostering a toxic boys' club environment. Lawmakers today grilling FDIC Chairman Martin Grunberg. And Stellantis offering to buy out half of its salaried U.S. employees as a cost-cutting measure. How much did the UAW strikes impact it? Details on this and more after the break. Welcome back. New Hampshire will hold its presidential primary January 23rd without President Biden's name on the ballot. That's because the Democratic National Committee issued a plan earlier this year calling for South Carolina to be the first state to hold a primary. That's at odds with New Hampshire state law, which requires it to hold its primary before any other state. The end result is Biden can't appear on the ballot since the primary violates the DNC's calendar. Really, no Democrat is supposed to be listed, but 21 of them will be. Voters will also be allowed to write in Biden if they wish. The Republican Party will recognize the contest, so its candidates are unaffected. And in other election-related news, no anonymity on social media. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley is now facing backlash for her idea. And Vivek Ramaswamy's latest attempt to get the chair of the RNC fired. NTD's Arian Pastar brings us an update on the elections, starting with a possible new 2024 candidate. 
Democratic Senator Joe Manchin recently announced he would not run for re-election next year. Now on Wednesday, NBC asked whether his next step would be to consider running for president. Watch. I will do anything I can to help my country. Is that a yes? And you're saying, does that mean you would consider it? Absolutely. Presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy on Wednesday launching a petition to fire Ronna McDaniel, the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee. Ramaswamy set up this website, firerana.com, to collect signatures. At the third Republican debate last week on NBC, he said the GOP has become a party of losers under McDaniel's watch. It's a cancer in the Republican establishment. Let's speak the truth. I mean, since Ronna McDaniel took over as chairwoman of the RNC in 2017, we have lost 2018. 2020, 2022, no red wave that never came. We and also on Wednesday, Ramaswamy took a shot at candidate Nikki Haley. He accuses her of pushing for the government to use private tech companies to censor speech. This came in response to what Haley said while on Fox News on Tuesday. Watch. Every person on social media should be verified by their name. That's, first of all, it's a national security threat. When you do that, all of a sudden, people have to stand by what they say, and it gets rid of the Russian bots, the Iranian bots, and the Chinese bots. And in New Jersey, the state's first lady is announcing she's running for the U.S. Senate, naming a few issues she wants to tackle. From gun violence and mass shootings to a warming planet that threatens our children's future to extreme politicians who want to defund Planned Parenthood and ban abortion. The governor's wife could run against Senator Bob Menendez, who's facing bribery charges. And lastly, Texas Senator Ted Cruz is announcing he's officially running for re-election, possibly helping Republicans take over the Senate. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. FDIC head Martin Grunberg grilled by lawmakers over reports of a toxic work environment. This after a Wall Street Journal investigation alleged a culture of sexual harassment, drinking and strip clubs. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. I was deeply disturbed and troubled. It's quite clear that there have been FDIC employees who have experienced horrendous treatment. FDIC Chairman Martin Grunberg says addressing his organization's culture is his top priority now. This comes after a Wall Street Journal report alleging a culture of sexual harassment, sexism, and heavy drinking at the agency. Female employees described it as a sexualized boys' club environment, where women consistently had fewer opportunities. According to the report, men frequently went to strip clubs together, and senior employees would text women sexually explicit images. Men openly talked about sex in the office, both among themselves and with women. One male employee reportedly stalked a woman all the way back to her hotel. Reports of such misconduct go back over a decade. The topic came up at Wednesday's hearing of the House Financial Services Committee. Those incidents that were reported in the Wall Street Journal happened under your watch directly. Were you made aware of those of the misconduct that was going on at the time referenced in those articles when you were chairman? Um, no, Congressman. When cases like that come up in which there is a complaint filed and then a review done, an investigation done and a disciplinary action taken, that would be done through our legal division. Gruenberg says the incidents were considered matters between employees, so board members like himself were unaware. Now that he is aware, he says he's hired a law firm to investigate the allegations. 
The Wall Street Journal also reported that women were frequently afraid to file complaints because they feared retaliation, and that when they did complain, the perpetrators were not fired. They were usually moved to a different office or demoted. Even Gruenberg himself was once the subject of a complaint. In 2008, I was interviewed pursuant to a review done in response to a concern raised by an employee, and I'm not aware of anything that came out of that review. Back in 2008, Gruenberg allegedly lost his temper with a female employee who reportedly did not inform him of the timing of an upcoming conference. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Anybody else? Stellantis is offering buyouts to half of its U.S. staff. The European automaker builds cars for the U.S. market under the Jeep, Ram, Dodge and Chrysler brands. What's behind the company's move? We spoke with NTD Business host Don Ma. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Tiffany. Great to be here. To begin, tell us about this buyout offer. So basically, Stellantis is asking some of its, its U.S. employees to voluntarily quit. It's offering a voluntary separation package or a buyout. Uh, the company said the offers would be made to all salaried staff with five years or more uh, working at the company. That comes to 6,400 of the 12,700 non-union staff. So, you know, basically half here. And uh, let me just read out the official statement to uh, Stellantis said uh, it's going to offer this package to assist those non-represented employees who would like to separate or retire from the company to pursue other interests uh, with a favorable package of benefits. So the workers uh, with less than 10 years of service time will get about three months of their normal pay and the size of the buyouts will increase with more time that you're serving for with the company so those with 20 or more years at the company Celantis will give them a full year's pay if they leave and why is the automaker doing this uh, so th this is a cost-cutting measure, it seems like. The company said uh, in a statement that the U.S. automotive industry is continuing to face challenges uh, in the market, uh, and Stellantis is taking some necessary uh, measures to protect its operations. Uh, but of course, we have to question whether this move comes as a result of the deal between Stellantis and the United Auto Workers Union, or, or maybe uh, as, as a result of the impact of the strike uh, taking a toll. It actually said the 44-day strike uh, by the UAW cost uh, $795 million. And on top of the losses, the tentative contract uh, with the UAW will actually raise hourly wages by 11% and give uh, raises totaling an additional 14% over the life of the contract. So, you know, that's something to keep in mind. Um, but just a side note here, General Motors and Ford, which also uh, reached tentative labor deals with the UAW, both of them actually also announced cuts to their uh, salaried staff uh, and both uh, with layoffs and payouts as well in the months before the strike. So keep that in mind. And how would this Stellantis buyout option impact consumers? Would we pay more for cars, less? Do we know? Well, I think... Uh 
It's trying to balance uh, the wage increases uh, with the profits that it's making off of its cars. So it's it's a challenging uh, question to answer, but I think it's going to help Stellantis uh, with their bottom line at the very least. But whether that is going to translate into cheaper cars for consumers, uh, it remains to be seen. But I mean, anything's uh, possible, I guess. Don Ma, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, as the leaders of the U.S. and China discuss threats to the environment, a rabbi tells us there's another type of pollution in the world and the U.S. needs to take the lead in addressing it. And we hear one family story of persecution in China about how faith is deemed a threat to the regime and what the U.S. can do. This and more when we return. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. The Israeli military sees the biggest hospital in the Gaza Strip, the Al-Shifa Hospital, during its fight against Hamas. The troops released evidence showing Hamas using the hospital as a terrorist structure where they hid weapons. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill grilled DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and FBI Director Christopher Wray. This is the third year in a row of record high apprehensions at the southern border, including many military-aged Chinese men. And the impeachment inquiry into Mayorkas nears an end. Former President Trump's attorneys in the New York civil fraud case filed a motion for a mistrial. Meanwhile, in Colorado, a judge will decide whether or not Trump gets on the state's ballot. President Biden met with Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the APEC summit in San Francisco. The White House assured prior to the meeting that Biden would no doubt raise human rights issues candidly to China. As the assault on religious groups in China intensifies, what should President Biden's message be to CCP leader Xi Jinping? We speak with the chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, who says the U.S. needs to take the lead on addressing the issue of moral pollution. Rabbi Abraham Cooper, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you. It's an honor. Right now, all eyes are on San Francisco, where President Biden is meeting with Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping. How do you view this meeting? Well, you have the official uh, items that are on the list. They're, of course, all important. Um, and talking about the impact on climate, pollution, and the future of the planet, it's critically important. We're also looking for a different climate change, uh, and that's a, a change in the um, nefarious approach of the current regime, the Chinese Communist Party, and its assault on uh, religious groups and minorities, obviously starting with the Uyghurs, who are suffering the most, but you also, of course, have the Tibetans. And um, uh, I can recall just a few years ago when I was in uh, Jerusalem at an international gathering of Christians and Jews that 3,000 Chinese Christians came to Jerusalem for that event I don't think three of them could come today. You have the forced closure. You have sometimes the destruction of churches. You have uh, a pressure on the content of sermons, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll have to see um, whether it's brought up and in the pecking order of issues raised, whether it's just brought out with one foot out the door or it's made a part of the central policy. And, and I just like uh, sort of to point out historically this isn't the first time that 
the Wiesenthal Center and other human groups are urging the a president of the United States to take on parallel multiple issues. Uh, during the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union, which is basically Russia, they had years of uh, negotiations and discussions on trying to bring down the level of the nuclear threat. But eventually the U.S. at all of these meetings would also bring up the human rights situation inside the Soviet Union. And eventually it made a huge difference. Most people in Asia, maybe all countries, uh, people respect strength. And strength is not only measured in how many missiles you have and what size Navy, but it's also a matter of your moral GPS. Rabbi, the White House also touched on AI technologies and, you know, the nuclear threats. But when it comes to human rights, not just inside China, but even here in America, the Chinese Communist Party has been described as a transnational criminal organization, including repression overseas. What would you like to see the U.S. touch on in that aspect? Well, I, I wouldn't say I was victim of a criminal act, but I was uh, last year here at uh, the campus of University of Southern California during a memorial program for uh, uh, Chinese citizens who died in a fire having been locked in during COVID, that the 200 or so Chinese students who were there all wore full face masks. And that's what it hit me that the reason they were doing so is they were afraid about uh, facial recognition and what might happen to their families back home. Um, I was just in uh, at an international conference on behalf of the Uyghurs in Tokyo, met with Japanese officials. They also have problems of ch uh, Chinese police and other methods in order to strong arm uh, Chinese citizens and expats all over the world, which they can now do a lot more powerfully, unfortunately, with the use of AI and other technologies. So again, in each of these areas, it's not that these other issues aren't important, but the American administration, uh, Japan, UK, France, uh, Canada, they need to start um, intermingling and weaving the human rights uh, issues into the economic and geopolitical issues. And Rabbi, we're seeing calls from the Uyghur population, Tibetans, House Christians, and also the Falun Gong spiritual discipline calling on President Biden to send a strong message to Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping when it comes to human rights. What is that message that the U.S. should be sending? I, I think the way we need, the message needs to be sent is that we're not only committed to human rights at home here in the United States, and we're so lucky to have these freedoms, but these are now, they're embedded in universal action. And think about it, all, so much of the discussion is about cooperation, about technology and harnessing the environment in the right direction, all important uh, goals. So you cannot say, no, no, we're, we're only gonna talk about what's inside your borders if it comes to human dignity, but when it comes to controlling uh, CO2 emissions, then we can talk about what's going on all over the world. You know, there's a, there is a uh, pollution of the environment, and then there's a moral pollution. So when the U.S. shows also its moral backbone, uh, it impacts in a positive way across the board. And without the United States 
uh, fronting on these issues, the signal that will be taken by the Chinese communists is they don't really care very much, and we could just continue our pernicious uh, policies in this area without much uh, worry. Definitely a lot at stake here. Rabbi Abraham Cooper, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Now let's take a closer look at one family story of persecution in China. Zhou Yu's father is currently under detention for practicing Falun Gong. Senator Marco Rubio wrote to Secretary of State Antony Blinken in support of Zhou's father last year. Where do things stand now on the heels of the Biden-Xi meeting? You, Zhou, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for inviting me. You testified in front of Congress earlier this year, calling on the Chinese Communist Party or the CCP to release your father. How do you view the Xi Biden meeting today? Is it going to help your father? I hope President uh, Biden should raise uh, the, my father's issue too. But I really don't know uh, because a lot have been going on in the past few years. So apparently human rights issue on my father's case might not be on their uh, agenda or priority. Actually, uh, just recent, the CECC, uh, they just released a release of prison consciousness, and my father is uh, including this. I really hope this time they could talk to see directly about my father, not only my father, but other prisoner of consciousness. Uh, there is a lot of people, Falun Gong people. Uh, I know several families, they are American citizens. They are relative in China, are sentenced to prison for 10 years. Someone has been persecuted to death last year. So it's something happening today and it's something very urgent. You mentioned prisoners of conscience, but tell us why your father is being held in jail. Uh, it's very simple. By definition, prisoner of conscience, if you are in prison because, not, not because what, what you did is wrong, just because of your consciousness, just because what do you think. So take my father, for example. My father believed in Falun Gong. So Falun Gong is a spiritual movement in China. Uh, generally speaking, people follow the principle of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. Starting from 1999, uh, the CCP waged a very severe persecution against Falun Gong. Millions of people had put into prison, labor camp, uh, and brainwashing center, including my father. But Falun Gong practitioners, they never fight back violently. You never have one case the Falun Gong practice to fight violently. It's everything peaceful. Everything we do, or my parents do, is just pass out the flyers, a piece of paper on the street. And then you can be sentenced to prison just because of that, just because of what you believe, just because of what you think. That's why my father is prison in country. And there is a million people in China were put into jail just because what they are thinking. Wow, I just want to highlight that, that your father is in prison just because of his faith. Why is the Chinese Communist Party going after people of faith? So the thing is, uh, if you know the history of communism, it's not only the Chinese communism. The communism is very anti any religion. I take about Christian, for example, because uh, I have family members who are, who are Christian. So when CCP first took power, like 70 years ago, a lot of Christians flee China because the CCP started to persecute the Christian. Even the Shanghai, the Bishop of Shanghai was house arrested for more than 30 years. Can you imagine that? And back to the case of Falun Gong. The Falun Gong started to gain popu uh, popularity in the 1990s. There is almost 
100 million people practice Falun Gong in China at that time. And that number is bigger than the Chinese Communist Party number. So the the leader of the Chinese Communist Party got afraid because they are not a, a legitimate government. They are not elected. So uh, their power just just come from their military power. There is a dictatorship. So they are afraid of anything they seem as a threat to their regime. That's why they start persecution. And it's not only the Falun Gong. They have a long history of persecution other religions. Falun Gong is just latest, just one of them and latest of them. To your point, there's been a lot of news about the Uyghur population in Xinjiang, especially in terms of human rights abuses. But given the human rights abuses happening inside China, what would you like to see the message the U.S. send to the Chinese Communist Party, especially today with this meeting happening? If the U.S. do not stand up against this tyranny, against the evil thing, then no one will stand up to this. And eventually, the Communist Party will come to your door. So I think it's very important. The U.S. president sent a message that abusing human rights in China should not be acceptable to U.S. and to the international society. If the CCP continue to do that, then the U.S. and the international society should come up a way to punish the CCP. You, Joe, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Coming up, how should the U.S. respond to China's growing influence in the Middle East? We'll hear a China expert's advice to Washington. And in college football, the latest playoff rankings are out, and Georgia is the new number one. But what put them ahead of Ohio State? We'll have that when we return. Welcome back. China is expanding its presence in the Middle East, both diplomatically and militarily. What is it trying to accomplish and how should the U.S. react? Earlier, we spoke with a China expert who tells us the U.S. has lost credibility in the region and needs to regain it. James Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. My pleasure, Stephanie. Good to be here. All eyes seem to be on the Middle East as the Israel-Hamas war continues. Now, there's been growing calls for a ceasefire, especially from the U.S., but also China. Is China trying to become a peace broker here? Well, they're trying to become a, a power player, uh, a peace broker on one side, probably, a Hamas side. doesn't look like they're in favor of, of the Israeli cause so much. But, yes, they're definitely trying to become a, a bigger player, a power player in challenging the U.S. in, in the Middle East. On that note, you have an article out on this, and in it you highlight the U.S.'s historical presence in the Middle East from Presidents Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton to Donald Trump. How has the U.S. presence changed in that that region since the withdrawal from Afghanistan? Is the U.S. being squeezed out in a way? Well, yeah, the withdrawal from Afghanistan sent a a horrible, uh, powerful message to our adversaries in, in the region, as well as to our adversaries on the global stage, such as China and Russia. Um, and Iran. And so we lost a lot of, of credibility, a lot, a lot of gravitas, a lot of street cred, if you will, in the Middle East, because we were we humiliated ourselves so, so badly and performed so poorly there. Um, and it's not just the, the retraction of our forces, but the way in which it, we conducted it or 
we didn't conduct it, however you want to look at that. So yeah, it's that in itself was a huge symbol and, and message across the, the region that the U.S. isn't isn't the power that it once was organizationally or in you know p- political will or strategically. And um, China is well aware of that. As you know, China's been spreading throughout the uh, the world and that part of the world with uh, their Belt and Road Initiative, and, and they have bases in Djibouti now, and they probably will have one in Oman soon. So they're taking advantage of the fact that the U.S. is a shrinking, um, withdrawing power in that region and in the world in, in general. Expanding on that last point, you point out in your piece that Beijing isn't expanding its diplomatic presence, but rather, as you just noted, its military presence in that region. What does that mean for the U.S. and more broadly geopolitics? Well, it doesn't mean anything good. And from, from the Chinese perspective, whether it's the Belt, the Belt and Road Initiative is not just a, an economic trade route. It's a, it's a projection of culture, of power, of control. Um, and so they're following that up with now the military uh, piece of that. And so it's, they, they don't exist uh, you know, in a vacuum. They're part of the same program. So what it is, is, is China asserting itself in the Middle East, and the U.S. is having a very difficult time um, projecting its power or even convincing people that it is, it is the relevant power to deal with. I mean, I say in my article, look, we've transferred billions of dollars to, uh, to the Iranian regime over the years, and what has it gotten us in terms of influence? Very little. So the Biden administration, uh, in contrast to the prior administrations, has been uh, manhandled by China. Whether it's the humiliating uh, summit they had uh, soon after they'd taken office, or the fact that uh, China is doing what it wants to do um, aggressively in, in, in the Taiwan Strait. It's, it's being aggressive with American military aircraft in, in Alaska or in, around Taiwan and other places. There's no pushback. There's no overall strategy here unless the strategy is to uh, withdraw. In that case, they're doing a great job. And it, di- diplomatically, um, the very fact that Saudi Arabia let and Iran agreed to have China negotiate their, their differences means they're looking forward. And as they look forward, they're seeing China as the big player in the region, not the U.S. Expanding on that last point, how did Beijing become the one to broker that so-called peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran? Why wasn't it the U.S.? Um, that's a great question. I think uh, it, it does stem from the fact that, that China's naval power and economic power um, are, are expanding, whereas the U.S. naval power is shrinking. Um, 20 years ago, China had a 37-ship navy. Um, not that not that impressive. Well, their navy is now 10 times the size, and um, the U.S. Navy is shrinking. China has more naval ships than we do, and you know, there's, there's, it's a good question strategically whether we can actually defend Taiwan. So um, China is making moves in the Middle East. They're buying a lot of oil, and they're helping these countries get around U.S. sanctions, particularly Iran. So those nations see China as a force to be dealt with and a force to be aligned with. Um, and they don't see the U.S. as having that much effect, especially given the fact that this, this Israeli-Hamas war, um, that's promoting a, a schism between these countries in terms of how they view the U.S., which is pro-Israel typically, versus how they view China, which is typically much more aligned with the, with the Arab nations around it. On that note, what can the U.S. do now to regain that status on the international stage? Well, we can stop shrinking our Navy. I mean, the fact is, is that 
our Navy is retiring another 24 or 25 ships uh, next year, and maybe we're launching uh, 10 or 11. Uh, what's going to happen is uh, the sea lanes are not going to be free anymore. There, there's that potential where China says, hey, we're going to have to charge you a fee to go through these uh, straits and through these sea lanes and so forth. So we have to start deciding, and that is a decision, uh, to become a superpower again, to, re to maintain our status. And that's just not by paying off our enemies. That's by building up our navy and building up our deterrence and demonstrating the political and diplomatic will uh, to back it up. A lot at stake here. Well, James Gorey, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. And now for your sports news, we welcome NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, the big news out of the NFL, Deshaun Watson needing season-ending surgery on his shoulder. How big a loss is this for Cleveland? It's not as big as it should be. I mean, he really hasn't played that well for Cleveland, especially considering they have three first-round picks for him and signed him to a $230 million guaranteed contract, which was the largest in NFL history at the time. Now, maybe this injury had been hindering his play, uh, but it doesn't explain his so-so numbers last year. Now, despite that, they're 6-3. and three, They're in the playoff race, but mainly because of their strong defense. If they do somehow make the playoffs without him and without Nick Chubb, who's also injured, Kevin Stefanski, he should definitely win Coach of the Year in that case. And what options are available if they do want another quarterback? It's slim and none at this point. You know, it's either free agency or nothing. The NFL's trade deadline passed like two weeks ago, which I think is way too early. It wasn't even the halfway point of the season. How do teams know if they're contenders or not? The fact is, I don't think most of them do. So what happens is, unless you're 0-8, are you really sure if you're going to be a seller? But if you're 0-8, I don't think you have much to sell, unfortunately. I think it's a lot like their ridiculous overtime rules, where the coin toss is one of the biggest parts of the game. Unless people complain loudly, they're probably not going to change it. And uh, looking at the college game, the latest playoff rankings came out yesterday with Georgia actually moving ahead of Ohio State for that number one spot. Now both teams are undefeated, so what accounts for this switch up? I'm guessing they looked at Georgia's strength of schedule and decided, well, it's, it's slightly better now than Ohio State's. The thing about these rankings, only the last one matters, and this isn't it. You know, there's so many big games left to be played. Ohio State still has to play Michigan next week. Alabama plays Georgia the week after. And on the same day, Washington and Oregon could be playing for the Pac-12 title. Now, of the five unbeatens left, I would actually say Florida State is probably in the most peril. They don't have a very strong strength of schedule. I think they're going to have to route all their remaining opponents if they're going to stay in this race. Lots happening there. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.